We want to remind our listeners that this program is for informational and educational purposes only and not intended to substitute for professional veterinary medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The Animal Medical Center does not recommend or endorse any products or services advertised by SiriusXM. Welcome to Ask the Vet with Dr. Ann Hohenhaus. This is the place to talk about your pets and get advice with a top veterinarian from the Animal Medical Center in NYC. Hear from the leading authorities on animals and give us a call to ask your questions. Now, here's your host, Dr. Ann Hohenhaus. Hello, and welcome to Ask the Vet here on Sirius XM Stars Channel 109. I'm Dr. Ann Hohenhaus, your host for today's program. I'm a board-certified internist and oncologist at the Schwarzman Animal Medical Center in New York City. We're the largest not-for-profit animal hospital in the world. Ask the Vet is available as a podcast, thanks to our partnership with Sirius XM Radio. And you can download this podcast, Ask the Vet, on all major podcast platforms. At the Animal Medical Center, we keep families together by providing the absolute best care for pets. Now, don't forget, if you have a question about your pet's health, you can call and leave me a voicemail message, and I will answer your question on next month's Ask the Vet program. It's simple. It's a toll-free number. Just call 866-993-8267. And if you don't have a pen or pencil right now, I'll give that number again later on in the show. We've lots to talk about today, but first up, our trending animal story. It's time for the Internet's most talked about animal. This is a special story in honor of February, which is Pet Dental Month. This amazing story comes to us from Liborne, England. A five-year-old pet porcupine pufferfish named Goldie was rushed to an animal dentist by her owner because her teeth had grown so long she was unable to eat and was losing weight. Dr. Daniel Calvo Carrasco, an exotic animal specialist at the Sandhole Veterinary Center in Snodland, Kent, made all the necessary arrangements to keep Goldie safe during surgery. Dr. Calvo used a special saw to gently trim Goldie's one inch long teeth in half, which allowed her to eat again. Interestingly, kind of like horses, porcupine puffer fish teeth also known as beaks, grow continuously throughout their lives. But their teeth are naturally kept short because they wear them down eating hard-shelled foods like clams and oysters. But the owner of Goldie, Mark Byatt, noticed her front beak was growing very quickly. And despite the fact that she was eating shelled food every day, her teeth were not wearing down properly. Mark says, we weren't sure why Goldie's teeth never really managed to grind themselves naturally, but we knew we needed to get expert help. The entire pufferfish dental procedure took less than an hour, and within two hours, Goldie the porcupine pufferfish was back home and eating well. If you want to see pictures and more information about this incredible story, just Google Goldie the pufferfish and you'll see great photos of her teeth trimming procedure. It's my pleasure today to welcome our special guest, Dr. Paul Calley, who's the chief veterinarian and vice president of health programs of the Wildlife Conservation Society, based at the Wildlife Conservation Society's headquarters in the Bronx Zoo. And and although the Wildlife Conservation Society is really a, a multi-location organization. Most of us in New York 
very lovingly call it the Bronx Zoo, which it's way more than that. Dr. Kelly joined the organization in 1989 and is responsible for the veterinary care provided in the Wildlife Conservation Society's four zoos and aquarium in Coney Island, and also collaborates with the health program of the Wildlife Conservation Society's global conservation program. Dr. Kelly also participates in local and international field conservation projects in support of of the Wildlife Conservation Society's global conservation mission. Dr. Callie is a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania School of Veterinary Medicine, and that means that after his name, he has VMD, um, because the, pens, the pen people still go by the Latin name for veterinarians. And he completed an internship here at the Animal Medical Center and also at the world-renowned San Diego Zoo. Most recently, Dr. Callie is a recipient of the American Association of Zoo Veterinarians Emil Dolensic Award, and that award is especially um, important to those of us in New York City because Dr. Dolensic was a former chief veterinarian at the Wildlife Conservation Society. The award is presented to a past or present member of the American Association of Zoo Veterinarians in appreciation and recognition for their exceptional contributions to the conservation, care, and understanding of zoo and free-ranging wildlife. This award recognizes similar individuals that have advanced the profession and served to link the related disciplines of zoo and wildlife medicine. Ooh, what a CV that is. So I'm so happy that Dr. Callie can join me today here on Ask the Vet. Um, so before we talk about your work at the Wildlife Conservation Society, just in honor of Pet Dental Month, I want to know if you have a special animal tooth story that you want to share from your career in zoo animal medicine. And thank you very much for having me on the show. And we've seen uh, a number of um, dental problems over the years and actually just recently saw a puffer fish with overgrown. Um, really? Yeah, it seems to be a problem they encounter. So no one particular case, but, you know, we've seen um, um, broken teeth and dental abnormalities. We do the same kinds of things that, you know, you do when you go to the dentist or when you bring your pet to the veterinarian. We clean teeth. Um, we've performed root canals and um, sometimes uh, we actually enlist the assistance of the AMC uh, veterinary dentist to do some of those uh, dental procedures um, in our in our animals. So same kind of range of dental problems that are seen in people and domestic animals. So how do you anesthetize a puffer fish so you can trim their teeth or do you have to anesthetize a puffer fish to trim its teeth? Uh, depends how tractable the fish is and um, how bad the overgrowth is. But in general, the way you anesthetize fish and some amphibians like um, some of the, the frogs and, and salamanders is you put the anesthetic solution in the water and then they absorb that anesthetic across their gills and it goes to their bloodstream and their brain and results in anesthesia. And it's actually the same principle as people or, you know, terrestrial animals breathing air that has an anesthetic 
in, in the air and, and it's absorbed across our lung, which is our respiratory membrane, analogous to, um, you know, the gills and lungs are analogous in that they're used for respiratory exchange, uh, respiratory gas exchange, but also anesthetic. And then we get a fish or any you know, fish or shark array out of the water, you can continue pumping that anesthesia water um, over their gills um, to maintain anesthesia the same way in people or animals, you administer anesthesia in gas um, by their uh, trach an endotracheal tube. Or a, or a face mask, yeah. So, so the gills, gills just you just pump the anesthesia into their gills and that works the same as a mask you, you, where you breathe an anesthetic agent. You put the aquatic anesthetic in the water, the fish yeah. in a container of water. And so as they pass that water over their gills, they absorb the anesthesia from the water. That very cool. Um, that level of detail was not in the Goldie's story. So <laughs> I'm sure our listeners appreciated that little insight. So Dr. Callie and I, not at the same time, but but actually not that far apart, both did internships at the Animal Medical Center. And yet, you know, his internship resulted in him having a career in Zoom animal medicine and conservation medicine. And, and you know, I'm a cancer specialist for dogs and cats. So how, how do you start with the same internship and end up in two different places where you did and I did? Uh, actually, it's a it's a means to an end. So um, I always was interested in being a veterinarian and not just a veterinarian, but a zoo veterinarian and not just a zoo veterinarian. But I grew up in Stanford, Connecticut. So my local zoo was the Bronx Zoo. So I always dreamed of being a Bronx Zoo veterinarian. And I'm one of those very fortunate kids that actually grow up to live their dream and enjoy it as much as I'd always imagined. So um, because I was always interested in zoo animals and wildlife, um, I always took advantage of opportunities to do that. Um, in college, I volunteered at the Philadelphia Zoo. I also went to the University of Pennsylvania undergrad. And then in vet school, I did rotations at the National and San Diego Zoos. And when I graduated from veterinary school, I wanted to do a small animal internship, especially at a place like the Animal Medical Center, because you have such an excellent team of veterinarians and healthcare uh, support personnel, and you have a large, varied caseload. And I figured in one year, I'd get great experience as a veterinarian. And as a zoo veterinarian, it's all about comparative medicine. You apply what you know about one animal to the care of other animals. And you know what you know about dogs and cats are very relevant to care for foxes or um, lions or tigers. And so, and I wanted a really strong grounding in veterinary medicine. So I specifically applied to small animal programs and not zoo animal programs for that first year out of veterinary school. Do some people do large animal yeah. programs? Because if you think about it, some of the hoof stock at the zoo are really much more like cows and sheep. Uh, and so would people do a, a, a large animal internship and then roll into zoo medicine? Sure, they certainly can. We have a lot of big animals. Um, and, and so that large animal training um, is very relevant for many of the, the species that we care for. And what's most important, though, as a zoo veterinarian is to have a really solid grounding in veterinary medicine. And you can do so much more, you know, with a domestic animal, whether it be a dog, a horse, a pig, a chicken, you, you know, you can do more with them and you have more opportunities to um, get experience 
um, with those species. And so that was great founding for my veterinary career for all of the basic veterinary um, medical and surgical procedures. And then after AMC, I was fortunate enough to do an internship at the San Diego Zoo. And that in some ways was very similar because it was you know, a very large practice, very varied caseload, lots of great veterinarians and, and health support people, veterinary technicians and keepers and others to, um, to work with and learn from. So now, now that we've had all that background, we can talk about um, the Wildlife Conservation Society. So you're calling in from the Bronx Zoo. And what other parts, which is probably the most famous part of the Wildlife Conservation Society, but what are the other parts of this organization? So the Wildlife Conservation Society is our umbrella nonprofit organization. And under that umbrella, there's the Zoo and Aquarium Division and the Global Conservation Division. And in the, in the Zoo and Aquarium part, um, we um, have the facilities we care for are not just here at the flagship Bronx Zoo, but also the zoos and, and Central Park, Queens and Prospect Park. And as you mentioned, the New York Aquarium in Coney Island. So that's kind of half of WCS is those four zoos and the aquarium. And the other half are our global conservation programs and they manage you know, five or 600 projects in 50 or 60 countries around the world. And all of that is geared toward preservation of wildlife and wild animals and wild places. So in, do you ever get to go though to those fun places where those projects are going on? Yes, and actually that's one of the parts of my career here that's been um, very interesting and rewarding is getting a chance to work on those in those conservation programs literally all over the world you know south africa the caribbean africa asia um, and working with um, those animals in those places has you know really been been great and we also work locally with um, our own local wildlife in the adirondacks and the, in the local tri-state area so i think it's important that that the listeners understand from you um, the, the really positive role that zoos play in protection of and conservation of species outside the zoo. Um, you know, I just came back from a trip to the Bahamas and where we were staying had the had a nursery for green sea turtles, which for those of you who maybe aren't as obsessed with animals as Dr. Callie and I, green sea turtle is like crush in finding Nemo. And then there were also cow nosed ray babies that were like the size of a dinner plate in this uh, nursery. Um, so that's just an example of how this organization was trying to take care of those particular species. But can you talk a little bit about what what groups like the Wildlife Conservation Society does to to protect and conserve animal species. Like, what's your favorite pet project? Yeah, well, actually, the thing I like most about my career probably is the diversity of animals and activities. But um, our conservation work, you know, is accomplished both through our zoos and aquarium and in our field conservation projects around the world. In, in our zoos and aquarium, you know, we provide an, op an opportunity for people to come and see, you know, and appreciate the tremendous biodiversity of our planet, as well as appreciate the threats to that, its future. 
And that helps people kind of understand the natural world and identify with it and hopefully act to protect it for future generations. And our zoos and aquariums also breed uh, endangered and threatened animals. And what we learn about caring for our animals can contribute um, our knowledge and expertise to field conservation. And we've actually had zoo animals that we raise and have returned um, to be released back into wild environments. And there are a number of species that have actually gone extinct in the wild and only survived because they were some of them in a, in a zoo or aquarium. And some of those animals have been um, bred and later their offspring were released back to repopulate wild populations that had actually gone extinct in the wild. And How how do animals know when you raise them in a captive situation and then you like plop them down outside? How do they know to do that? Or do you do something in raising them that makes them learn those skills? Um, it, it's a mix of some innate behavior, especially with um, reptiles and amphibians that they can be released directly into the wild. Some of the birds and mammals require, you know, special procedures to kind of train them to be a wild animal and, and reintroducing animals successfully. is actually a pretty sophisticated, complicated process. And the biggest challenge actually is the lack of places to put them um, not so much the ability to breed them and release them because so much of, you know, the natural world has um, been transformed into, you know, human landscape. Um, yeah, yeah, that so you can successfully breed them. You could make them be able to survive in the wild, but you don't have very much wild to put them in anymore. In some cases, um, and our zoological health program team have been especially active in conducting pre-release health screening of turtles and land iguanas, uh, mostly in the Caribbean and Asia that are being released to the wild to reestablish wild populations. And um, we also similarly have responded to um, confiscations of animals, both here in New York City and New York State, as well as other countries. And we've provided the veterinary care for um, those confiscated animals. Like people then, have a wild animal in their apartment in New York City? Is that what you mean? Um, a range of things. Sometimes they're confiscated at the airport because they're being illegally imported. And so we'll work with Fish and Wildlife or um, you know, New York City or New York State regulatory agencies to care for those animals. Um, sometimes, as you say, people have things in their um, homes that they're not, that's not legal to have where they are. And so when those animals have been confiscated, we've also helped different New York City and state agencies um, or the US Fish and Wildlife um, with those kinds of situations. Wow. And then in our conservation programs, of course, um, you know, that's all geared toward wildlife and wild land preservation. And we've been instrumental in establishing over 100 national parks and preserves around the world, including kind of iconic places like Yellowstone, Galapagos, and Kruger National Park. So, and all of that is under the umbrella of WCS. And Yellowstone, Kruger, and uh, the Galapagos are three 
if anyone ever has a chance to go to any of those places, just say yes, because all three of them are absolutely wonderful places to go. I've been lucky to go to all of them. Um, Yellowstone is magical. Yeah. And and I've been to all three, too, and they are fantastic. And, and, you know, none of those things, you know, we do alone. We have great relationships and partners, um, you know, both, you know, federal government, local, regional authorities, other conservation organizations to work together on these kinds of projects. Well, these projects are huge and and they really take cooperation of of local people um, on the ground, as well as experts in other areas to make the whole thing work, actually. You know, they're these are not small projects by any means. The animals might be really small, um, some of them, but the projects no. So what's a typical day look like um, for the Bronx, the head of the Bronx Zoo health, Animal Health? Well, for the first 20 years I was with WCS, I cared for animals at all four of our um, zoos and aquarium. And so it was really great because I got to work um, at every park every week and um got a chance to work with such a great, you know, variety and diversity of animals. Now as the chief vet, I probably have a bigger role in managing the the people and the program, uh, but still enjoy caring for animals uh, when I can. And it's really been great, you know, as I mentioned earlier, all of the opportunities I've had to participate in field conservation activities, both locally and around the world. And it's been really rewarding to see animals in the wild that I've worked with in zoos and aquariums and see them acting in the wild the same way, you know, for my entire career, I've seen them acting in zoos and aquariums. So that's been really special. Uh, When we went to Africa, what I was stunned by was that we sat and watched a pride of lions for a good chunk of an afternoon because they were fabulous. And they they have the exact same behaviors as the tiger cat that's sleeping on your computer or on the sofa or, you know, hog in the bed. They they groom in the same way. Uh, you know, they bend their little front feet over and groom their toes. And and so they were just, you know, 100 X of regular cats. But but their behaviors were just so much the same as as the pet cats that we know and love. I was really surprised at how much that behavior was maintained within a similar, but yet diff- very different species. Um, yeah, same, same thing when you look at primates and you see them doing things that you, you know, have seen people. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, it, it, absolutely fascinating. There's all relationships um, there. So how many do you know how many animals are in your your four zoos and aquarium? And then how many veterinarians does it take to take care of all those animals? Yeah, it's over 10,000 animals. And that includes, of course, a lot of fish um, at the aquarium. And we have a team of 14 veterinarians and also veterinary technicians and other support personnel. You know, it really does take a team effort. And while I'm mostly administrative, um, we also have four full-time clinical veterinarians, three clinical veterinary residents who come um, to train with us for three years. Uh, There's two full-time aquatic veterinarians at the aquarium. 
um, three full-time veterinary pathologists and a pathology resident or fellow, um, and then additional veterinarians and scientists in our conservation programs around the world. It's a really, you know, big effort. Big team. And are they all, you're a board certified zoo specialist, and that, that's one of the many specialties in veterinary medicine. And the pathologists you have would be pathology specialists. But what other what other types of specialists do you have? Because AMC loves specialists. Yeah, so we're kind of the ultimate GP because we all care for all species and all of their problems, um, all their different organ system problems. So we're kind of the, the ultimate GP. Um, and we're all boarded in either zoo medicine, avian medicine, or pathology, um, but not qualifications or certifications below those kind of broad categories. Um, many of us have particular areas of interest and expertise about you know, the animals um, that we have a lot of experience working with. So it's a very complementary team um, having everyone together. And do is the work of a zoo veterinarian, you know, I know that our AMC's exotics people spend a lot of time worrying about the husbandry or the living conditions and the food and the care that the snakes and birds and reptiles that come into AMC have. So do you spend more, do your veterinarians spend more time on husbandry or more time on disease? Um, definitely on healthcare because we're very fortunate that we have an excellent team of animal curators and managers and keepers, and they're all specialists in caring for the animals, husbandry and nutrition, just like we are specialists in the care of their medical problems. So we have a tremendous advantage um, in their level of experience and expertise um, that not all pet owners have that same degree of knowledge and experience. So, you know, I, I think many of our listeners are very animal centric. And so they probably know that the Bronx Zoo has been featured on the Animal Planet program, cleverly named The Zoo. So how how do you decide what stories are going to be on that program? Because I'm sure you have like a million great stories. So how do you figure out which is the great story for TV? Yeah, well, if you haven't seen it yet, the zoo is a really great um, show. We've just finished season five and it's a true reality show. I mean, there's some things that are planned, you know, as with all veterinary practices, you have a schedule that you think you're going to um, work on and then emergencies and surprises come up. And so part of it is activities that are planned. And, and one day I was the only veterinarian in the hospital when a peregrine falcon was brought in from the Wall Street area to be found on the FDR drive. And so since I was the vet in the house, I took care of that bird. And that was on one of the Animal Planet um, sessions. Um, so it's I actually enjoy watching the show a lot because it's so much more than just veterinary care. And I learn things all the time about what the animal keepers and managers or, you know, our horticulture team does or our exhibits team does, you know, aspects of, you know, our operation that I'm not directly involved with. So that's always 
um, fun for me to see that other side of things, just like it's fun for people who um, are not in Azure Aquarium to see all of the um, different aspects of what it takes to, to have a zoo like this. When in the middle of the pandemic, when we were not letting any pet owners in the Animal Medical Center, I, I think I had uh, two animals brought in from the same family and it, it needed a second person to take the other animal down back to the owner. So I went down and there's a taxi parked in front of AMC. And on top of the taxi is a red-tailed hawk just sitting on top of a yellow New York City taxi. I said, what are you doing here? It was the most, I couldn't get my camera out fast enough before it flew away. But I think um, right now we have a bald eagle uh, that's been hanging out in uh, the reservoir in Central Park. And I think that's one thing that people don't realize is how many birds come through New York City and then they slam into these tall buildings that are in their flight path. And I bet that's how the Peregrine Falcon got to you. Did it slam into a tall building and then end up on the street? It, it, it was not observed. And actually, I think it was the bird's first flight. And so I think it oh. came down in a it was from a nest on a nearby building because peregrines are um, nest on cliffs in, in the wild. And so our skyscrapers um, and their ledges are similar to that. And so fortunately the bird was um, not seriously injured and was, was able to be released again. But it is surprising what a diversity of wildlife there actually still is in New York City. Um, there's a lot of, you know, as you said, raptors and you know, hawks and small owls, um, raccoons and skunks, of course, coyotes and deer have occasionally made appearances. There were beaver that came back on the Bronx River for a time. Um, so, you know, we have enough green space that um, some wildlife still lives within the city limits and certainly, in the spring and fall bird migrations, um, our big parks uh, are really attractive to migrating birds. And so they'll stop over there. Well, and I suspect, do they stop and visit you in the Bronx Zoo too? Because it's, yes. it's a big chunk of green in the middle of a lot of concrete. Big chunk of green and we have ponds, we have streams, we have mature woods, we have fields, we have scrub, open areas. So a lot of different habitats. And yes, we see a lot of um, native birds coming through. Yeah. Um, I spend a lot of time in Central Park trying to scope out birds and and watching what birds are around on Twitter. Um, so we're getting close to the end of our time together, but I thought I would give you a chance to tell us anything. What are your memorable moments working at the Bronx Zoo or some question that you thought I was going to ask that I didn't? Well, I think what's been most special to me about working here has been the long-term relationships I've had with both, you know, our people who take care of the animals and the animals themselves. And, you know, literally I've seen animals born or in some cases delivered them and then cared for them, you know, for the rest of their life, sometimes for years, sometimes for decades. And, you know, kind of those long-term relationships, both with the people and the animals um, has really been a great and very, you know, satisfying part of the job. Uh, and I will tell you, you know, I've been at the Animal Medical Center for 30 some odd years, and I have one family who I've taken care of grandma's dogs and mom and dad's dogs. And now one of the children in that family has gotten a 
a dog as well. And so that three generations of animal care has been a lot of animals and a lot of fun times over the years, you know, taking care of this one family's um, pets. So I, I think I think that's what people don't realize about veterinary medicine is that we're really a people business. But in doing our people, our job working with people, we get these great animals of all kinds that we get to take care of. And so uh, that is, I think, one of the really special things about what you and I get to do. So our time with you is up today, but I want to thank you so very much for taking time out of your busy day to talk with us here on Ask the Vet. And um, when we come back, you can, I'm going to remind you that you can um, ask a question about your pet's health by calling and leaving a, me a message. And that phone number is 866-993-8267. And when we come back from the break, we've got this month's animal news. We're back with Dr. Ann Hohenhaus on Ask the Vet. Call now with your pet questions on Sirius XM Stars. Thanks, everyone, and welcome back to Ask the Vet here on Sirius XM Stars Channel 109. And it's time now for the animal news. It's time for Animal Headlines, the biggest animal news from across the world. Our first story is an animal jubilee similar to that going on right now in Great Britain, where the 70th anniversary of Queen Elizabeth's reign is being celebrated. According to the Guinness World Book of Records, a 190-year-old Jonathan is the world's oldest ever land animal. Jonathan is a Seychelles Island tortoise, and tortoises belong to a group of animals known as Chelonians. That category of animals encompasses all turtles, terrapins, and tortoises. And with that distinction, Jonathan may be the most famous resident of St. Helena, a remote island in the South Atlantic. And although his old age has left Jonathan with poor vision and no sense of smell, his hearing is excellent. And according to his veterinarian, Jonathan still has plenty of energy. Little has changed in Jonathan's almost two centuries on this planet as his main interests remain sleeping, eating, and mating. Jonathan is beloved by generations of St. Helenans. Officials are working on Jonathan's birthday celebrations, which are planned for later in the year. There will be a series of commemorative stamps, and everyone who visits him this year will be a, receive a certificate featuring the first known photo of Jonathan's footprint. If you want to read more about Jonathan and his 190th birthday celebration, just Google Jonathan, the 190-year-old tortoise. Our second story today is about a feisty feline named Ashes. She escaped from her Maine home over seven years ago, Maine, like in the Northern United States. And after an extensive search, her owner, Denise Chili, believed that her beloved pet had succumbed to a predator somewhere in the Maine woods. Fast forward to earlier this month, seven years later, and Ashes was found 1,400 miles away in Longwood, Florida. So completely down the Eastern seaboard. And how did they figure out it was Ashes? She had a microchip. Janet Williams, a former Maine resident who now lives in Florida, is the founder of Adore Pet Rescue. 
and she was instrumental in Ash's rescue and helped her recover from an upper respiratory infection and dental disease. And according to Ms. Williams, Ashes has bounced back quickly. She's got a good coat and is a good body weight with a lovely disposition. And a Southwest Airlines employee has volunteered to fly Ashes back home to Maine once she's healthy enough for the trip. If you want to learn more about how microchips can help your pet, just log on to AMC's website, www.amcny.org, and in the search bar, type the word microchip. Our third story today is about a Jack Russell Terrier named Minnie. And Minnie was saved from drowning by a sausage. Yep, you heard that right, a sausage. And this is not an inflatable sausage. She did not float to her rescue. The water was rising and Millie could not be reached. And so the drone search and rescue team in Hampton, England, decided they would be creative and they attached a sausage to one of their drones. Chris Taylor, chair of the Denmead drone search and rescue team said, it was a crazy idea, but we couldn't think of anything else because we couldn't reach Millie by kayak or any other means. And thankfully the sausage tied to the drone worked. They flew the drone out to Millie and slowly brought the drone in towards the shore and Millie, hungry as a Jack Russell Terrier is often, swum right after the drone with the sausage and then Millie got on shore and was rescued and is now safe back with her owner, Emma Oaks. What a story, but probably a good lesson because lots of people have drones and lots of animals need rescues and can't be reached. Don't forget, if you have a pet health question, just pick up the phone and leave me a message on our toll-free voicemail line, and I'll answer your questions next month on Ask the Vet. That number is 866-993-8267. And now let's go to some calls from our listeners. Our first call today comes from Sharon. Hi, my name is Sharon, and I'd like to know if I'm making homemade dog food if it is safe to do in a pressure cooker or if it is better to slow cook or even bake in the oven. Thanks so much. So Sharon, this is a really important question. Um, one of the concerns about pet food that veterinarians have is that it be properly cooked because cooking kills any bacteria that might be in the food that would make your pet sick. But the method of cooking is not important as long as any meat that is in the pet food is adequately cooked to kill the bacteria. So if you cook the meat to how you would cook something for yourself, you're gonna have that adequately cooked, but you don't wanna feed raw meat because that can carry bacteria. But what I'm more concerned about Sharon's home cooked diet for her pet is that that diet should really be evaluated by a veterinary nutritionist in order to make sure that that diet is complete and balanced for a dog. Dogs have different nutrient requirements than people do. And so if you just feed your dog like you would feed yourself, you run a high risk of having that dog's diet be deficient in um, vitamins and minerals like calcium and also some micronutrients that dogs may need that you don't really need as much of. So my recommendation to Sharon would be to Google 
um, board certified veterinary nutritionist and their website will help you to find um, a veterinary nutritionist who can evaluate that diet and make sure it's complete and balanced for her dog. Um, just if you aren't as energetic as Sharon is and going to cook for your dog, um, you just need to look on the label of the pet food. And if it says that this food is complete and balanced for a puppy, then you know it's a good food to feed your puppy, but it's not a good food to feed your adult dog. So that, that verbiage is important on the label of pet foods. So Sharon, I hope um, that your cooking festival for your dog uh, goes well, but I do think um, have that diet evaluated, make sure it's complete and balanced. Our next question comes from Robin in Michigan. Hi, my name is uh, Robin and I am from Michigan and I have a question about um, our puppy who is eight months old. Um, at any rate, when she drinks water, she has this coughing that she does a lot and um, it's just really odd because They've uh, done a scope on her and at the vet's office and can't find anything. Um, they, she has been uh, spayed, so that's when they did the scope to look down her throat to see if there was something possibly with the apparatus, um, whatever. The other thing that she does is when she gets overly excited, so she goes to someone's house or somebody comes to our house, um, she will pee and it's quite a bit and she doesn't seem to be able to control it so just wanting to know um what we can do to help her to get through this otherwise she is a perfectly healthy puppy and uh so she's a she's a mini labradoodle but she is um so again if i can uh, have somebody let me know what your thoughts are on that. I'd greatly appreciate it. Thank you. So Robin, when, when the doctors looked at her throat, uh, when she was getting spayed, they looked to see if there were any structural abnormalities that would predispose her to coughing and didn't see any. But there can also be functional abnormalities where the, the throat and esophagus don't work properly to get food or water out of the mouth, down the esophagus and into the stomach. And to evaluate um, that type of abnormality, there, there's a special like movie x-ray called fluoroscopy where they have you swallow a dye and watch the dye go down the throat um, with this special movie x-ray. And so it may be that that's the next step that this puppy needs to sort out the cause of coughing when it's drinking water. It's not there's a structural problem, but the esophagus somehow isn't moving quite correctly. The problem with urinations is not an uncommon one. Um, this is more not possibly as much excitement, but a behavioral situation where the puppy is nervous. And so oftentimes puppies will roll over on their back and urinate um, when a stranger or a strange dog approaches them. And that's called submissive urination. And, and they do that because they're they're anxious and worried. So the first thing to do is 
not in a situation where your puppy is distracted by new people or new dogs is to teach your puppy to sit on command. And it'll take a lot of treats, but puppies are usually quite food motivated. And then when someone comes to your house or she meets a new dog out on the street, as, as you see that person coming or as you um, see the dog coming down the street, make your dog sit and stay so that and don't let her roll over and tinkle and get her used to doing a sit stay when she meets someone new that will help distract her from the fact that she's anxious about these other animals. It's also good to enlist a friend or family member who can come to the front door, ring the doorbell, you do the sit stay, and then you open the door and let that person in or, and to evolve someone, uh, a neighbor with a dog and again, do the same thing. Have your neighbor come towards you, have her sit stay, treat her. And every time she does that, when she doesn't roll over and tinkle, then reinforce that good behavior. And you can probably break her of this habit, but this takes work. And this is not going to be a quick two practice session fix. This is going to take daily work every single day for a while until she understands how she's supposed to behave. So good luck with the mini Labradoodle. They are cute as buttons. And I know why your head over heels about her. And our final question comes from Bonnie. My 13-year-old dog, her head is crooked. She seems weak on one side, took her to a neurologist. They said nothing's wrong. They don't see anything, uh, want some blood work ordered, and took her to the regular vet first, and they said they didn't think she had a stroke. But So this is a perplexing case uh, in, in this dog. Dogs absolutely do have strokes. And oftentimes the dog will be acutely abnormal and then all of a sudden be better a day or so later. And, and we often see that in dogs having strokes. Um, this dog that's weak on one side and sounds like its head is turning in one direction more than the other direction, also might be a dog who has some other neurologic problem inside its brain. And the other possibility would be that it has some sort of neck pain or something going on. So from, from Bonnie's description, I would have thought this dog had a neurologic problem. And yet Bonnie says she's seen a neurologist who said there wasn't anything wrong with her dog. So I'm, I'm not quite sure what direction to send Bonnie in other than to say, if there's another neurologist around, maybe she wants a second opinion because I agree. I think that this is sounds like a neurologic situation uh, or maybe neck pain. That would be another thing that might cause a dog to hold their head in one particular direction. But I think Bonnie needs to continue to, to pursue this because it sounds really like there's something wrong with her dog, but I, I'm afraid I can't be more specific than that. So when we come back from our break, I will have news from the Animal Medical Center. We're back with Dr. Ann Hohenhaus on Ask the Vet. Call now with your pet questions on Sirius XM Stars. Welcome back to Ask the Vet here on Sirius Stars Channel 109. Uh, it's time for news from the Animal Medical Center. The Animal Medical Center was founded 112 years ago as a temporary clinic to provide veterinary care to animals whose owners could not afford care. And today, the Schwarzman Animal Medical Center continues to give back to the community. In 2020, the Schwarzman Animal Medical Center donated nearly $5 million in veterinary care through its charitable programs, which include 12 funds to help pets in need. 
For a complete list of those funds, you can simply go to www.amcny.org and search community funds. And the Animal Medical Center has 120 veterinarians, and we work together across 20 specialties and services, seeing 60,000 patient visits each year. And that translates to 160 pets who come through AMC's door every single day. The USDAN Institute of the Schwarzman Animal Medical Center wants to provide pet parents with free access to accurate pet health information. And that's why we offer monthly education events, an online pet health library, and user-friendly videos on our website to help keep your pet healthy. The USDAN Institute is the leading online platform to search out trusted and timely pet health information, and all the information provided on the USDAN website is verified by veterinarians at the Animal Medical Center. Our monthly free virtual pet health events, and we also have a weekly newsletter that contains useful pet health information and tips. You can stream all past pet health events right from AMC's library. And understanding intervertible disc disease, what we know about spinal cord disease, was featured last month on my Ask the Vet program with Dr. Dan Semino. That's our most recent program. But we've also had programs on novel treatments for bladder and prostate cancer, separation anxiety, red eyes in pets, and arthritis. We've now done two Pet Lovers Book Club events, and the most recent one was a conversation with Craig Grossi, author of Craig and Fred, A Marine, A Stray Dog, and How They Rescued Each Other. The next Use Dan Pet Health Information will celebrate February as Pet Dental Health Month, and we'll be brushing up on the basics, home dental care for pets. That event will take place on February 16th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, and pet owners will learn from AMC's dental resident, Dr. Jordan Ford, about home care for pet teeth. The USDAN Institute for Animal Health Education also has scheduled the next AMC's Pet Lovers Book Club, which will feature Susan Orlean, author of On Animals, and that will, event will be March 9th at 6 p.m. Registration for all of these events is absolutely free, but you need to register so we know you're coming and we can send you the Zoom link. If you want to register, you simply need to go to amcny.org and type in USDAN, U-S-D-A-N, events, and you'll sign up there, and then we'll send you a Zoom link for these great events. I want to thank my special guest, Dr. Paul Kelly from the Wildlife Conservation Society, or as we call it in New York, the Bronx Zoo. And I want to thank all my listeners and everyone who called in with a pet question. I want to remind everyone that they can download the Ask the Vet podcast from any podcast platform and want you to know that we really appreciate your support in listening to our show. Be sure to like and subscribe the show to stay updated on all the latest pet news and tips. Keep safe, everyone, and I'll be back next month for the next Ask the Vet show here on Sirius Stars Channel 109. Thank you and have a great month.